How many of you like watching scary movies? Any of you into scary movies? Uh, I will admit, like, I, I hate scary stuff. Like, I, I get terrified. I shake. I shiver. I'm not into it. Uh, I worked in youth ministry, and we took these kids to the corn maze down in Union Gap. And it happened to be on one of those nights that they had the scares in the corn maze. Now, how many of you have been to the, 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 the corn maze, and they've got the scary people in there? Now, I just hate it. And so I am walking through this corn maze just expecting, like around every corner, I'm expecting some scary guy to jump out and say boo. And I'll just be honest, I scream like a girl every time. Like this high-pitched, ah! Every time. It just... And when you're going through that corn maze or like a haunted house or whatever, you just, you know it's coming. It's like you're expecting the unexpected. It's just the way it works. That idea of... Expecting the unexpected is kind of similar to the book of Judges. Because as we study this book of Judges, man, it's, it's a book that really keeps us on our toes. Because the unexpected is always just around the corner. Because when you read through the book of Judges, there are some stories that you read and you're like, that's in the Bible? Like, I did not expect that to be in the Bible. Where there's just some stories that are, are graphic and alarming and, and uh, some potty humor and just some, some crazy things. But unlike the corn maze, the book of Judges serves to teach us a purpose. It teaches us about who God is. It teaches us about what God is like. And it teaches us that God is a little bit unexpected. Now, we can't put God in a box and expect him to stay within there because God is greater than that. So today, we're going to look at the first two Judges in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3. Uh, before we jump in to look at those two judges, uh, I want to, again, just point out one of these unexpected things that we read about God. Now, if you remember last week, we gave a little bit of background and introduction to the book of Judges. Do you remember why there were still some Canaanites in the land? Remember, remember this? Remember they were supposed to go, the Israelites, they were supposed to go and drive all the, 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 the Canaanites out of the land and take possession of it? And remember, they didn't believe God enough. They were fearful. They didn't obey God fully. And so there's some of these Canaanites left in the land. And that's what we saw last week. And they served as a temptation to Israel. But chapter 3 goes a little bit further as to why God allowed some of these Canaanites to remain in the land. Look at what, look what he says. Chapter 3, there's verse 1. It says that these, na- these are the nations that are left. These are the nations that the Lord left. And listen to this. He left them to test Israel. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who have not known it before. Okay, so, so imagine with me. Imagine with me this little setting, okay? Imagine there's a little family and they've got their little minivan. They've got a bunch of little kids in the back of the van. And one of the kids comes out of Sunday school class, comes out of Sunday school class. He's so excited. And he gets in the back of the van. He says, hey, mom and dad, we learned this lesson today about how God promised to drive out all the Canaanites out of the land. We learned this story that God said that he would drive all the Canaanites out of the land. And they're driving their minivan. And they're like, hey, mom, how come there's Canaanites still in the land, though? If God made this promise, well, did God fail his promise? Why are there still these people here. And the response of those parents would have been, well, because our ancestors, my parents, they sinned. They, they didn't obey God. They didn't trust God. They didn't do what God told them to do, which is drive all the inhabitants out. And the little kid will looks and says, but mom and dad, that's not our fault. 
Like, 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 like that was our ancestors. That was, our, that was their fault. That's not our fault. Why are we being punished for what they did? I don't, I don't get this. I mean, after they died, how come God didn't just drive the people out? I mean, after they died, I mean, they, they could have suffered through that. But after they died, God, how come, how come God didn't drive the people out to give us the land that God promised? And there's this simple answer that the book of Judges gives us. He said, these people are still here to test us, to see if we will truly believe God and, that if, and, and if we would believe God enough to know that he's going to fight for us, that he is on our side, that he is with us in all things. So let me ask you this. How many of you have ever wondered, how many of you have ever wondered, well, why, why doesn't God take sin out of the world? How many of you have ever wondered, well, well, how come God doesn't remove all of our pain and our struggle and our difficulty in this life? I mean, like, honestly, like some of us were like, man, I'm following you, God. Like, like I'm trying to read my Bible. I'm trying to go to church. I'm, I'm trying to do what you want me to do. And it's kind of like, God, I'm, I'm doing this for you. Shouldn't you do this for me? Like, if I'm following you, God, wouldn't you remove the pain and the struggle and the sin? Like, doesn't that just make sense, God? Wouldn't you make my life easier? In fact, you can even argue and say, well, God, more people would follow you. More people would be obedient to you if you would just do that. Just get rid of all the struggle. Just get rid of all the sin and the difficult things. I mean, isn't that what we say? We're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and blessed. And this is where, when we have a basic understanding of God, and this is, again, the theme behind the book of Judges, is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In our own eyes, like the fact that God, God doesn't remove these things doesn't make sense to us. In part, and this is what we have to understand, that in part, the reason why God allows these things to remain, sin and struggle and difficulty, is because God wants us to learn how to struggle with these things in his strength and not our own. That he, he wants us to learn how to rely on him and to rely on his grace and not rely on our flesh and in our own strength. Because again, I, I can't say this for you, but I'll say this for me. I'll say this for me, that when things go really good, when there's no problems in my life, when, when everything's the way it should be, when me and my wife are connected, when the kids are obedient, when all the bills are paid, man, I get, I get pretty arrogant. I kind of get that season where things are going good. I'm like, well, I don't need to pray because I already got things figured out. Well, I, I don't need to give this to God because look, everything's going so good anyways. And I have this tendency when things are going good to rely on my own strength and to think I'm good enough. And this is where Paul, God, God is trying to get our attention to help us understand. He leaves these things in our life so we learn how to lean on him. In fact, the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul is a godly man. Uh, he wrote Bible. Like any of you wrote Bible? Nobody wrote Bible? Uh, I didn't. The apostle Paul wrote Bible. He's like a spiritual giant. Of course, if anybody's going to be blessed by God, it's the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's, he's, he's great. But this is what Paul says. He describes to the Corinthian church about a thorn in the flesh that tormented him. We don't know what this thorn was. It could have been a, a physical or a spiritual or emotional affliction. But in fact, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, Paul says, three times I pleaded with God about this to take this away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
Listen, if you look at the circumstance of your life right now and you're like, man, there's some pain in it. There's some, some difficulty. I feel some struggling. Man, I want to I wanna just help you to take heart in that. Because it's in those moments that the relationship with God becomes real. It's in those moments where the relationship with God becomes personal. And you begin to experience his presence on a whole different level. In fact, we're told, we're told in scripture that God disciplines those whom he loves. And God is not, he's not, he's not, he's not bringing things back to you to, to shame you. He's bringing you back so you come back to him. That the difficulty is meant so we learn how to lean and trust in him and lead into him. I'm not saying that all suffering is tied to something that God's trying to correct in our life. But this is an unexpected and almost surprising idea about God. That sometimes God puts difficulty in our lives. He puts suffering and hardship to teach us what it looks like for us to trust in him. To put our hope in him and not in ourselves. It's one of the beautiful things about this book is expecting the unexpected. And that's when we're introduced to our first judge, a judge by the name of Othniel. Look at verse 7. It says, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. You see that word? He said, they did evil. You know what evil is? Now, we have this idea. We think about evil, and we think about, well, evil is somebody else out there, right? Evil is those people that do the things I don't do. Evil is those people who, who murder Evil is those people who, who, who do all that bad stuff. Really, really bad people. It's not, it's not us. Like, we're, we're, we're good people, right? But do you see what God says is evil? It's almost unexpected because the way that God defines evil probably affects every one of us, every one of us in this room and probably describes us to some extent. He says, he says to these people, he said, you did evil, you forgot your God. Which doesn't mean they completely forgot, they didn't know who he was, but it means they no longer allowed God to control them. Now they had this head knowledge of who God is, but they didn't allow that knowledge to affect their heart and change actually how they live. And so what is evil, evil is when we forget God and when we pursue other things above God. That is what evil is. Is that when we forget to allow our life to be dictated by him, we begin to pursue other things looking for the blessing that God offers us, the fulfillment that God offers us, the peace that God offers us. That is what evil is. So the people, they do evil in God's sight. And it says that God gives them over to this guy, and I'm not even going to read his name. Adam, you did a great job reading his name. Good job. And they served him for eight years. Eight years, after eight years, they finally cry out to God. God, we need your help. And notice, this is all that the Israelites contributed to this whole story. All they did was do evil and then cry out to God. And then what does God do? God raised up and deliverer by the name of Othniel. Now, Othniel is a guy, maybe you remember him from last week. He was a guy that we looked at from chapter one. Uh, Othniel would have been a guy that we expect to be a ruler. We expect him to be a judge. When you look at the background uh, I've mentioned in, in chapter 1, it's Othniel is a guy who faithfully fought for God. He faithfully drove out the Can Canaanites. And so God said, here's what I want you to do. Othniel, man, he was faithful to that. He said, God, that's what you said. I'm going to go do it. 
Uh, God said, I want you to marry only Israelite women. No, I don't want you to worry, marry any Canaanite women. And so what does Othniel do? He marries an Israelite woman. He obeys. Like you look at this, Othniel, he comes from uh, the family of Caleb. He's got this great family background. Othniel's a guy that we expect to be a leader. We expect him to be one of God's people, right? I mean, he, he obeys. He's married the right kind of woman. He's got the right kind of a background in history. In fact, when you look in the book of Judges, He's the only judge that is presented without a flaw. Every other judge, man, they get progressively worse. They just do dumb things. Othniel is not presented that way. You might think, well, Othniel, man, he's, he's the guy that we should look. But, but look, look, what, look at how God describes Othniel. Verse 9. Look at this. It says, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And look at verse 10. It says, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. And he went to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, Rithaim, uh, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. You notice who the emphasis is on? As great as Othniel is, as good of a leader as he is, the emphasis here is not on Othniel. The emphasis is on God. Look what God did. God raised up a deliverer. God raised up Othniel. Look what he did. The Holy Spirit was upon Othniel. And the Lord gave the king over into his hand. The whole idea is, is God's the one who does the work. God empowers Othniel for the position and for the, the, the work that God was going to give him. God gives him the victory. Verse 11, after God gives him the victory, the people enter into rest. This is the idea of, of, of not just like rest from war, but it's this idea of, of peace and shalom. That everything in life is the way it should be. There's this sense of completeness. They're going to experience that rest for 40 years until Othniel dies. They have this rest for 40 years until Othniel dies. Again, here's Othniel. He's a good judge. He's he's a righteous man. He brings peace to the people, and that peace is real, but it doesn't last. Because when Othniel dies, what happens in verse 12? It says the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord again. And here's, here's the thing about the judges. Here's the thing about leaders, and here's the thing that Othniel is going to teach us. Listen, good leaders, they are going to help us find God's will. Good leaders will lead us to times of rest and success and blessing. But the thing is, it doesn't last. It's temporary. Because leaders and judges are temporary, right? I mean, here's what happens for so many of us in life, right? Is we're going through life, we're going through, and we're going through difficult circumstances, and we begin looking for someone who can give us input. We begin looking for a leader, an answer, a mantra. mantra. We're looking for someone who can tell us how to find peace, how to overcome the difficulty, whatever it happens to be. So you've got a marriage problem. You've got a problem at work. You've got a problem in your faith. You're looking for a leader to come and tell you how to get through this, right? We can just find a leader to follow. Where things get hard, who do you call? Things get hard, who do you call? You call your mom. You call uh, your your spouse. Your spouse is the one that walks through everything with you. You've got a best friend that when things go down, you're going to call the best friend and they're going to give you advice. You've got a counselor, a favorite counselor that you're going to call. Hey, things are really hard. I need to call the counselor. But here's the problem. Leaders are temporary. Leaders will fail. 
And so we look to all these people, hey, I've got this problem. Come and rescue me. Come and make this better in my life. In fact, I worked with this couple a number of years ago. A great couple, love them, got to do their wedding for them. And I'm working with them through this wedding. They get married, and every time there's an argument, we need to call Kevin. We need to call Kevin. We've got this problem. We're not going to argue it amongst ourselves. We need Kevin to come and tell us how to solve this. I don't tell him, I'm going to fail you. You can't keep doing this. I'm not the answer to your problems. Because what Othniel is trying to help us understand, I think what we learn in the story of Othniel, is he is pointing us to a greater judge. To a judge who is eternal. A judge who is always present. See, Othniel gave them a temporary rest. 40 years. But then Othniel dies. And then guess what happens? They need another leader, another rescuer. And Othniel is trying to to point us to the problem with every human leader. Is no matter how spirit-empowered they will be, they're going to be temporary. Othniel is trying to point us to Christ, who will last forever. In fact, he's the one who says in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am the living one who was dead, and behold, I am alive now, and I'm alive forever. Listen, leaders are good. Leaders are necessary. But you know what a good leader does? A good leader is going to point us to a greater leader, the eternal leader who is always present. Because he's the only one who's going to truly bring us the the, the peace and the joy and the meaning of life that we so much long for. So I'll tell you what, you can call me if you've got a problem in your life, and I'm going to point you to someone greater than me. Because I don't have all the answers, but I know who does. And this is what Othniel's trying to do. He's trying to say, hey, 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 look, there's a greater judge that you need, a greater leader. That's Othniel. The first judge. Second judge. Second judge is a guy by the name of Ehud. You see him in verse 12. Verse 12, the whole cycle starts all over again. The people do evil in the eyes of God as soon as Othniel dies. Uh, And so this time they're given over to the king of Moab, who who creates an alliance with some other enemies so they can oppress the people of Israel. And I, I don't know what that looks like, but it doesn't sound very good. Verse 13, it says that this alliance, this evil king and the other friends, they took the city of Palm Springs. Uh, a.k.a. Jericho, the city that God had miraculously given to Joshua. And listen to this. It says 18 years they suffered before they cried out to God. Like how many of us, how many of us go through the same thing? How many of us go and do the same thing day in and day out and struggle for, for years without ever finally crying out to God? Because what I see in this text is when the people cry out to God, man, God listens. God answers. 18 years they suffer, and then they cry out to God. And God raises up a deliverer, a guy by the name of Ehud. What's interesting is you look Ehud, uh, there's a description towards Ehud. It says he was a left-handed man. Ehud is left-handed. And you first read this, and you're kind of like, okay, well, what does that have to do with anything in the story? Well, we're going to get there. Because as you read through the Bible, you find that God often talks about the right hand of God. And it's always in a positive light. The right hand is always a symbol of power and authority, right? I mean, this is what happens where God, God, it says that God swears by his right hand. That Jesus, where does Jesus sit next to God? He sits on the right hand of God. And so you see this idea that it's always talking about the right hand of God. Why is that? Because let me just, how many of you are, are right-handed? How many of you are left-handed? 
How many of you in here are left-handed? Okay, most of us, most of us are right-handed. Most people are right-handed, not because we're better. It just happens to be that most of us are right-handed. And so when this text says that uh, Ehud was left-handed, the original text doesn't just mean that he was left-handed. That text means that he was unable to use his right hand. So very likely, Ehud is a guy who has his right hand paralyzed or disabled in some sort of way. And that'll be important here in a couple of minutes. So, again, you've got this idea. You've got Othniel. He's the first judge. Othniel is expected. He's who we expect to be a leader. And then you've got Ehud. And it's almost a little unexpected. that This guy who has a physical deformity, who, who is disabled in his right hand, that God would choose him to be a leader. Because in their society, like we think our society might be difficult for people that have disabilities. Their society was incredibly cruel to anybody who had any sort of physical uh, disability or handicapped in any sort of way. And so Ehud would have been a very poor choice to be a leader. Who's going to follow the disabled guy? Really, it's the way they would have looked at it. There was something wrong with him, which is why he was disabled with his right hand. And so nobody is going to follow this guy. But... God chooses him. So Ehud, he volunteers to take uh, a tribute, a tax, uh, maybe part of this idea of being an oppression. He takes his tax to King Eglon. And unknown to anybody else, it says that Ehud, he, he, he makes a sword that's 18 inches long, and uh, he, he uh, hides it in his right thigh. He conceals, carries it. I wonder if he had a permit for it. Like, I don't know if they did that back then, but he, he takes that, that sword and... That's my right, that's my left thigh. He hides it in his uh, right thigh. I do know my left and right. I do. I do. So here's, here's Ehud. He's got the sword. He hides it. And verse 17 says, he goes to present the tribute to the king of Moab. Now, uh, and it says, now Eglon was a very fat man. Again, this is where, like, this is what the Bible says about him. Like, I can't help when I read about Eglon. I, I hear about King Eglon, and he's this evil king who's oppressing the people. Anybody picture Jabba the Hutt? Like, you just, my mind goes to Jabba the Hutt, like some large, sinful, self-indulgent ruler. That is Eglon. There's, there's a picture for you. So as I tell the story, you can picture that, right? It says that when Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people away who carried the tribute, and he turned, him, he turned back to go back to the king. And he said, King, I have a secret message for you. And the king commanded silence, and all the attendants went out from his presence. And this is where it's important to remember that he was left-handed. This is where that plays in. Because most people being right-handed, and so if you had a weapon, you would put your weapon on your left hip or your left thigh, and you'd hide it on your your left-hand side so you could grab it with your right and be ready for battle or whatever you're going to do, whatever it happened to be. But, But here's Ehud, who's physically handicapped with his right hand. And because he's physically handicapped, no one's going to think a handicapped person is going to be any threat to the king, right? And so they'd find Ehud before he goes to the king. They'd probably frisk him. Uh, we don't feel anything on his right side. Oh, no, his left side. Oh, gosh. I don't feel anything on this side over here, right? No one would have expected him to be a threat to the king. And so they all leave the king alone and allow Ehud to go on his own to see the king in secret. And the king steps to get close up to Ehud. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took out the sword from his right thigh. And he thrust it into Jabba the Hutt's belly. 
And the hilt also went in after the blade. And it's gross, right? The fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And, and it gets worse, and dung came out. Like, this is pretty gross. And this is where I say, like, sometimes the book of Judges, you, you're like, it's unexpected that this is in the Bible. Like, this is literally in the Bible. Little bathroom humor plays out here, right? Verse 23. Verse 23 says, Then Ehud, he went out into the porch, and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and he locked the doors into the king's chamber. And when he had gone, the servants came, and they saw the doors were locked. And so they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the bathroom, right? It smells like it. Smells like he's relieving himself. The doors are locked. They can't get in. And so, again, this, it says they waited until they were embarrassed. All right. Now, I did a little studying this week, and I found the original youth pastor's trans, uh, translation of this verse, this text. And it says, the original youth pastors, uh, they were like, hey, where's the king? The door's locked. Do you hear any movement? And they're like, I don't hear it. I smell movement. Uh, and so it says they waited until they were embarrassed. They gave the king a few minutes until it got really awkward. And when they still couldn't open the door, they took a key and they opened it. And there lay the king dead on the floor. The story of Eglon is important because it shows that Ehud was an unexpected leader. That Ehud, essentially, he proves to the people that God is with him by this assassination of Jabba the Hutt. Because again, Ehud is disabled. Nobody's going to follow him. But as he goes and accomplishes his feat, the people begin to realize, hey man, maybe God is with Ehud. Maybe we should follow and listen to Ehud. So Ehud escapes. He sounds the alarm. He sounds the battle cry. And all the Israelites, they gather with Ehud, the unexpected leader, who became the leader through unexpected means. And they triumph over their enemies. And it leads to 80 years of peace for uh, the people of God. Now we get to the end of that story. We're like, what is the lesson in that? What do we learn from there? There's two things that we're going to learn from this story. First thing we're going to learn is, is the story of Ehud points us to the type of Savior that Jesus is. It's going to point us to, to Jesus. And how does it point us to Jesus? Again, this is where, when you understand the context for the book of Judges. The first judge, Othniel, he's the, the, the judge that, that is right. He's a judge that we look to expect to be a leader. But after him, every other judge, man, each leader is rather unexpected from a worldly standard. I mean, you, even looking at Ehud, Ehud, man, there's a shady story. There's a shady action in the story. Like, like God chooses a guy who just assassinated the king, who was de- devious in the way he did it. I mean, is God condoning that? I don't think God is condoning that. But I think you have this idea that you see these leaders that they, they, got, some, they got a little mess to deal with. They're not perfect. They're not stereotypical. They're not the people that we look up to and say, I want to be like Ehud. I mean, anybody hear a Sunday school song about being like Ehud? Father Abraham had many sons, and Ehud had a knife in the king's belly. Like, you don't hear those songs. Ehud and every other judge in the book are all pointing to another leader, a greater leader, a more significant leader, an unexpected leader. When you look at these judges, they're unexpected. And they're pointing to an even more unexpected leader in Jesus. Because think about this. Like Ehud, nobody looked at Ehud and saw a leader. 
But when, when people looked at Jesus, Isaiah 53 says he had nothing about his appearance that we would desire him. That he was uh, despised and rejected. That nobody would have looked at Jesus and thought, man, here's a savior of the world who's come to make my life right. Nobody would have looked at his life and there was nothing about him. He was poor. He probably wasn't all that tall. He probably wasn't all that good looking. He probably wasn't all that commanding as a leader. And yet God orchestrated the greatest salvation through the unexpected leader of Jesus. Just as Ehud, his victory is a little bit surprising. Jesus' victory is just as much as a surprise to the forces of evil. Because if you remember the gospel story, remember the gospel stories, the enemies of God thought, man, we win. Like, here's Jesus, supposed to be the Savior. Look, we killed him. We killed him. We put him in the grave. We put the tomb in front of the grave. No, we put the rock in front of the grave. We put the stone in front of the grave. We win. They're like, we, we have defeated the Savior. This person is supposed to do all this for the people. They did not expect. They did not expect Jesus to pull out the sword of the resurrection. They had no anticipation that this is what God was going to do. That he would stab the powers of death in the heart by resurrecting from the grave. In fact, there's so many people in the Bible who missed out on salvation that God was sending through Jesus because it was not what they were expecting. So many people in the Bible, they're expecting a political savior. They're expecting a political savior who's going to lead the people out of being oppressed by the Romans. This is what God's going to do. He's going to be some, some politician, and he's going to be winsome with words. They didn't expect Jesus who was homeless. They didn't expect Jesus who, who, who had nothing uh, really to offer. Jesus was a stumbling block because he did not meet their expectations. And honestly, there's some of us where it's the same way. Where we're looking for a Savior who's going to end all of our problems. We're looking for a savior that says, listen, if I, if, I, if I obey you, if I go to church and if I put a few dollars in the offering basket, that means, God, you're going to bless me. And I'm not going to struggle anymore. I'm not going to have any problems. And everything's going to be perfect. And I'll be happy and healthy and wealthy and blessed, right? Listen, what if Jesus had a different way to defeat evil? What if our main problem isn't suffering on this earth? What if our main problem is separation from God? What if our main problem is not getting cancer? What if our main problem is the fact that we die in the first place? See, it's unexpected from our own eyes. It's unexpected from our own eyes. And here's God who loves us, who promises us, abundant life and like the start of this message listen if you're struggling if you're in a difficult season of life listen i want you to be encouraged i want you to be encouraged because you are loved by god that those things are given so you can draw closer to him that you would not be confident in yourself but that you would begin to learn and experience what it means to actually have a relationship an intimate personal relationship with jesus who walks through the most difficult things in your life. And then in the middle of that, in the middle of that, he gives us this idea of joy, of a peace that passes all understanding. When everything in our world is falling apart, listen, it does that. That when you have the, the presence of Jesus and that relationship, 
that there's a hope that comes in that. There's a peace that comes in it because he's with us. And he carries us through those things. The story also teaches us something about ourselves. Because many of us, and we love God, right? Many of us, we, we all, we love God. But despite that, many of us still think, well, I love God, but if I could just get my act together, if I could just get my life put back, if I could get myself free of doubt, if I could, if I could uh, get out of debt, if I could overcome this sin, if I could uh, slow down my schedule, whatever it happened to be, if I could just get this, then, then, man, if I could achieve that, then I'd be good with God. We believe that God saves us by grace. I mean, we're in, we're in a church. We hear that all the time. Most of us, absolutely, I believe we're saved by grace. But deep down, there's many of us that believe that when we reach that peace and that spot that God blesses is when we live a good enough life. That when we live a, a clean life and when we overcome our sin and we have everything looking just right. And so what we do is we begin to airbrush the details of our life. We walk into church and try and make things look better than they really are. Look, I'm really happy. I'm, I, everything, everything figured out. And we airbrush and we fake it. Trying to clean everything up and remove the rough edges. And what I love about Judges is it shows us the type of people that God loves. It shows us the type of people that God uses. It shows us, it shows us the type of people that God blesses. Okay? Catch this. You want to know the type of people that God blesses? It's not the people who have it all together. It's not the people who have the perfect life. In the Bible, God continually uses and blesses the people that are messed up. The people that are unqualified from our eyes. The people who have glaring personality and character defects. The people who you and I, most of us would say, those people are unusable by God. Those are the people that God often uses and blesses. The people that you and I call sinners. See, this is where we have to understand God is a God of grace, not a God of works. That God takes the people in the margins of our society. He takes those people in the margins of our society in order for us to see that salvation comes from God. Salvation comes from God and not our wisdom and not our strength and not our abilities, but it's something that God gives to us as a gift. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, think back to us when God saved us. He says, not many of us are wise or influential. Not many of us come from noble birth. Most of us are rather weak physically and spiritually and morally. Then Paul says, God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise so that we would not boast. And I begin to think about, man, God, I want to have that blessing. I want to have that, 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 that help in my life. I want to have that, that ability. You see what it comes from? It doesn't come from us being so great. It comes from the blessing and the gift of God. The greatest person in the kingdom of God is not the person who has it all together. It's the person who sees their sin and repents of it without excuse. It's the person who knows the grace of God. The person who can repent of their sin without bitterness. It's the person who knows that God has a purpose for them. 
It's a purpose. It's a person who is humble enough to be transparent. Remember this idea from a couple weeks ago that we would be naked and unashamed. The person who can just say, here's where I'm at. Here's where I am, God. And when we do that, you know what God does? God takes our meager offerings. God takes the weak people of the world and transforms him. It does something beautiful. And we read about these guys like Ehud and Deborah and Samson and the Apostle Paul and Pastor Kevin. That God takes the weak people who just say, God, here's what I've got. I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to try and get everything together. I'm just going to give what I have to you. And God takes that and blesses that. And I love that this whole book, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, continually point us back to our need for him, to our need to lean on him, to trust in him, not to trust in our own wisdom, not to trust in our own strength, not to trust in all that we can do, but continually point us back to our need for him. Let me pray for you. 